What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing today, man? Doing well, doing well. Just uh, storming these uh, streaming sites, man. We're, we're taking it back. We're stopping the, uh, the seals. You know how it is. Yeah, as we... Uh, as we move into 2021 officially and the, uh, the American experiment seems to be not going so well talking about Stormin, we'll probably be talking about Stormin Norman as we do our top 10 movies of 2020. Um, but first we're going to talk about some 2020 movies. We didn't get to review in full yet. And we had the, the pleasure I would say of watching this past weekend. Um, but first, before we get too far into it, if you're not subscribed on YouTube, why not go to youtube.com slash nostalgia pod and hit that subscribe button as well as soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod uh, to follow us anyway. No downside. like to. Yeah. Just, just a click, just a, a notification when, uh, when these videos are posted, you're getting that good content in your ears. And Dave, we were fortunate enough to both get into the Amazon. Was it like a pre-screening or correct? Early screening of one night in Miami, a movie that's drawing quite a bit of buzz um, uh, for, I think, a number of reasons that we're going to get into. But the thing that I noticed first when doing a little bit, looking into this movie a little bit, uh, when I first heard about it was Regina King uh, direct directing this uh, adaptation of a uh, play that has uh, been in Los Angeles and in the UK, not on Broadway yet. Um, but you know, the fictional telling of a night in, uh, was 1965. Um, yeah. After Muhammad Ali beats Sonny Liston, the, 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 the night that follows, uh, and, uh, Muhammad Ali catches clay at the beginning of the movie, Muhammad Ali by the end, Jim Brown, Sam cook, Malcolm X are all celebrating the win or in the ring by Cassius Clay. And, you know, looking at, I think, some some very interesting perspectives on uh, the role of black men in the social justice movement of the 1960s. Um, I guess first, like, what was your experience just getting a chance to see this movie before it's out on Amazon next week? Yeah, it'll be out on Amazon the 15th. Um, after playing in like token theater release back in December. So it was nice to get this in even just a little early. And, uh, you know, knowing that it was a stage adaptation from the Kemp Powers play, Kemp Powers also wrote this film version. We just talked about Kemp Powers for his role in Pixar Soul. Very strong year for him without question. Um, knowing that it's a stage adaptation, and having just seen *My Rings Black Bottom* on Netflix, you know you have preconceived notions about what the movie is and what the movie will not be. And I was I was happy with still how theatrical I felt the movie was, despite largely taking place in one setting, like a lot of theatrical adaptations does. Um, you know, it still had that cinematic feel, I should say. And uh, I was really just struck with the acting, and I think that was kind of the the buzz going in was that there it was a movie with strong acting. And even though it's a real life meeting that happened, uh, obviously the, the dialogue, these scenes in the hotel room is completely fictional. No one really knows 
what they didn't didn't do or talk about that that night but i think the creative license in this case is a really really good and it makes sense this has been a successful play because of how you know resonant the the topics are and uh, how um capable these these famous figures are as avatars for these thoughts that still resonate today so i i I quite enjoyed it yeah and you know you're talking about these performances that we get and uh you know you have obviously leslie odom jr who had whose star has risen a lot since uh he played uh, aaron burr as uh, the production of hamilton the original cast um but really the the most tenured screen actor that you have here is aldous hodge yeah. who you know you, you know from the invisible man hidden figure straight out of compton mm-hmm. uh going all the way back to I, I, first time i remember seeing him was friday night lights the tv show where he played uh voodoo voodoo uh i forgot the last name of the guy but he was an opposing quarterback and um you know all respect to aldous hodge but maybe not somebody that when you think of like top tier actors immediately comes to mind for you. So you kind of look at this cast and maybe going in, you might say, ah, you know, there's not really a, a big name here that's drawing me in, but I think you walk away and you're really impressed with, I think everybody in Hodge would probably be my fourth favorite performance in the film. Um, you know, I think especially the dynamic between Kingsley ben and Leslie Odom Jr. playing Malcolm X and, Sam Cooke, respectively, um, the tension between them, the back and forth dialogue. I mean, they definitely have the meatiest parts to play. I'd say. I mean, uh, Eli, uh, is it gory or gore? I think it's gory. Double yeah, E, gory. Um, he gets to to chew the scenery a lot. You know, yeah. kind of really playing up the Cassius Clay yeah, very accent. Young yeah, at the time. Yeah, and, to be, yeah. and bombasticness, but. Um, really the movie is between uh, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. Tell me your, just your thoughts around Kingsley and, and Odom Jr. In, in these roles. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Leslie Odom Jr. is obviously a, a good piece of casting as a mm-hmm. legendary soul singer because Leslie Odom Jr. is a singer himself. So pipes. And he has good acting chops on top of that. So that adds to the performance when he's actually doing the singing and we've already seen him do it. We know what that's going to be. And it's really a wonderful contrast to have that with Kingsley Benadier's Malcolm X because their, their kind of conflict uh, I think is really, really great. Like, yes, they're, they're talking about how white run society dictates their lives. And, you know, you have the scene, like the, the I think a really strong scene early on with Jim Brown goes to meet someone in Georgia mm that he's known for a long time and just still experiences this like blatant, terrible racism. Right. And like, it's a really stark scene. So you have like that kind of obvious stuff, but like they actually kind of gravitate away from kind of the open discussion where everyone knows where they stand when it comes to like the black experience and Malcolm and cook seem to focus more on like, you know, the community and helping the community and, and, and things like ownership and how, you know, black power dynamics and like how you should be operating when you're successful and actually beating white society, you know? And I think that's the kind of stuff where, again, it's still a really resonant topic. You th- you can think of hearing that from all kinds of entertainers, whether it's someone like, like even like a Kevin Hart has talked about that kind of stuff before when he's doing interviews, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or like Diddy or Jay-Z or something, right? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's a common idea, but to hear it from them 
thinking about that in the sixties, right? And this 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 date where this happened, this this meeting, it's only about a year before Malcolm X is killed, and uh, Cook also dies tragically not too soon after that. So, yeah. um, you know, you ha- you have that hanging over it, that that heaviness if you know the history and. Uh, the movie makes a good point of reminding you about Malcolm's history in particular, if you didn't um, to have them like th- with that, that heaviness and that, um, I think that weight because it's, it's coming from them. Um, and then you, you're discussing these themes, I think really eloquently that happens still resonate today. Uh, the writing is, it is really impressive. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to take these four, black stars who are really at the height of their powers during this time you know sam cook uh had multiple hits on the top 100 chart by that point had already created you know had his own label had all of his masters like he talks about in the movie muhammad ali obviously just ascends to the top of the boxing world and will go on to be one of the most visible and recognizable people in the united states for the next two to three decades Jim Brown, obviously, uh, you know, right next to like OJ Simpson is two of like the most famous football players. I mean, OJ comes, I guess, a little bit later. Jim Brown's more that OG football, mm-hmm. but yeah. um, you know, it's really like you have these people at the height of their power, and it it throws them into this discussion about what's the responsibility with that power and how do you go about using that to help your your fellow black man out and i really uh, the the line of dialogue that really stuck most with me or i guess the moment that stuck most with me was the when sam cook is talking about um w- how he sold that that other singer's song to the ro- to i forgot who it was like the rolling stones or some yeah, other band exactly. and for her cover that, yeah that, and then that that song gets played over and over and instead of making all the money off it, going to the top and then falling off the charts, every time that song gets played, they get royalties from that. And that's how he is moving, uh, you know, his, his, his fellow man forward. He's helping to economically break free of the constraints of the white man in America. Malcolm X then takes out the, the vinyl and puts the Bob Dylan song, um, uh, blown in the wind and plays that song and says this says this says more about our experience than anything you've ever sang and just like I, I really loved that back and forth because I think it just so beautifully like summarized the the issue at the heart of the movie is like what do you do with this with this power when you have it and how do you help move forward but just in a way that wasn't totally like in your face because it's just such a layered argument and then as they both go their separate ways and talk you kind of hear them both like admitting that they each were right in different ways but um you know it's, it's a mix of of using all these different facets of your power it's mm-hmm. really really interesting and thought-provoking um i really found that to be probably the part of the movie i i connected most with um any other scenes or moments that really like connected with you i think they did a good job of having levity uh come in here and there whether it's like the bodyguard scene or uh, when he comes into the room or when cook and Brown are talking about wanting to get some women involved in the party or um, <laughs> the funniest thing, the, the funniest thing for sure was uh, when they ask Malcolm, what kind of ice cream he has and he like, <laughs> it's like vanilla and 
vanilla <laughs> and it was right on the heels of them roasting him for not being like a, a good party host and yeah. i was like oh this is perfect <laughs> and uh th- then they do a really good job of contrasting the different personalities that those guys had on top of you know different careers and uh different ways of approaching uh similar viewpoints uh so that was good and heck even some of the supporting characters really small roles right you have Lance Reddick as one of the bodyguards. Everyone knows him from John Wick recently. Uh, Lawrence Gilliard as and the, the trainer. Wire. Wait, wait, wait! I'm not gonna let you gloss over that. From John Wick, like, well, he's in, he's Reddick. in everything. Is he in the Wire? I didn't know he's in the Wire. Oh yeah, he's uh, he plays Captain. I forgot what his name is, but he's been he's, a cop a billion times. Yeah, he's great. Okay, yeah. yeah well, that. Lawrence Gilliard's from the Wire. I know that. Yep. Uh, trainer, and then Jeremy Pope, and that Sam Cook scene as a Jackie Wilson. I like that. Heck, you even got a Fountain Blue cameo. Shout out Marvel's Mrs. Maisel, you know. Um, So even though, again, it's largely set in one location, has that stage play feel, I think Regina King does a really good job of, you know, whether it's like rotating that camera around or just kind of moving out and about with the hotel from time to time. It definitely felt uh, still plenty cinematic to me. And I actually was quite happy to see Aldous Hodge in like a meaty role like this. I've always really liked him and he's kind of been doing a lot of like oppressed, like imprisoned even characters recently, like in Clemency and uh, what was it? Brian Banks. But like, I I think this was a really good role for his and couldn't really tell, but I feel like he actually, do you think he like bulked up for this? Like he looked pretty big as Jim Brown. Uh, Yeah, he was pretty big. I mean, I, I don't know what else he's working on. I don't know if it was just for this, but he definitely looked huge and, um, Eli uh, Gorey looked like oh, enormous, yeah. like uh, he was linebacker. Just like peak human <laughs> specimen shape for that. Yeah, no yep. question. Um, Performance-wise, though, I think Kingsley Benadier is the clear uh, highlight just because he's someone who's been around a little bit. Like, I knew him from High Fidelity. You said you saw him in uh, Noel. Noel, the <laughs> n- noted Disney Plus rom-com holiday <laughs> comedy. Um, but have a, mo- have a movie like this, you know, no one really knows your name as far as acting goes and mm-hmm. to you know malcolm x again that's a character that's been uh played with great esteem by denzel washington the same way muhammad ali's been done by will smith so to take on these characters and, and bring it bring something different to the performance and not just try and copy what had been done before uh i think it's really great and i think for for kingsley kind of the way he would uh shift between being understanding and, and being kind of like mild mannered and also like really sticking to what he believed. And, um, you know, as the movie progressed, you really sense his, his foreboding, his caution, his, his sense of dread about his situation. He was expressing that a lot, right. Both his standing with the nation of Islam and also his, you know, the prevalence of the FBI mm-hmm. wherever he went, right. Stuff like that. And again, you know, you know how it ends, but heck, even when the movie starts and I see, Malcolm, you know, like, like I like the fight, for example, wherever he is, I'm like, man, like, is Malcolm moving right? Like, I, I'm just scared something's gonna happen to him because you know, and then you, you can tell that he, you know, has the bodyguards, the hotel and stuff. But yep. yeah, Kingsley Benadier, without question, I think is a uh, tremendous in this, and he's definitely in the mix for best actor. Best actor is pretty loaded this year, so not a lot he gets nominated. Although I think one that Miami's gonna do pretty well at the nomination. It seems like it's pretty safe for a best picture nomination and. Regina King even will probably contend for a director nomination. So uh, we'll be hearing more about the movie, no question. Yeah. Uh, is this Regina King's first directing? She's directed some yeah. TV. This is her first film. 
that's what I thought. Really impressive from her. Um, I mean, if she if, if she was to pick up a Best Director nomination right after winning like a bunch of actor uh, Oscars and Emmys in like a five year stretch, like the run is just incredible right now. Well, I'm hoping she gets the nomination because I think this is definitely worth it. But um, very very solid movie, and definitely check it out when it drops on Amazon Prime this uh, Friday. Uh, or is it is it on Prime or is it just dropping on Amazon? It's on. It'll be on Friday on on the fifteenth okay, uh, on so Prime. Give it a watch because I know you have Amazon Prime, and I also know you have Netflix. And I hope that you got to watch Pieces of a Woman, um, the Vanessa Kirby Shia LaBeouf movie, um, and of course Eliza Schlesinger, which you know everybody <laughs> came to the movie to see her. But uh, I was here for Benny Safdie actually. You know, it was funny because when when I saw his name in the credits at the end, I was like. Oh, like I literally like did like oh okay because I was trying to place who it was and I was mm. like, I can't remember. Did, um, okay, did you recognize Jimmy Fails? He's no. the uh, the guy who uh, Kirby's character meets in that dance that party scene. Mm-hmm. That's Where, uh, from? he's from Last Man Black, Black Last Black Man San Francisco. Oh yeah, it's like his wow. second or third movie after that. Uh, um, and, and of course, you got Sarah Snook from Succession as well. Really nice, well-rounded cast. It is. Um, it's directed by Cornell Mandruxo, I believe yep. it's pronounced, and uh, executive producer Martin Scorsese is probably the, the big name that you'll see attached to this. But um, yeah, this is a movie uh, where uh, Vanessa Kirby's character Martha uh, and Shia LaBeouf's character Sean um, are having a baby at the beginning of the movie, kind of lays out a little bit of the background on them, leads up to the the birth of the child the birth doesn't go well shortly after the baby's delivered um baby passes away and then it's about really their their journey um in dealing with the grief of of, and of this loss as well as you know kind of interacting with their support system you know ellen burston plays elizabeth uh, martha's mom uh who's a i think a major factor in this movie and a a propellant of the the plot moving forward so you know, a lot of uh, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that really stick out to me. It almost feels like the movie kind of goes through like high points and lulls a lot. Um, but again, similar to the movie we just talked about, One Night in Miami, I think you get two to three top tier performances here. Um, you know, I, I think we would say that we're Vanessa Kirby stands here after <laughs> uh, the last Mission Impossible movie and her her standout role in that um yeah I, I thought she was great what did you think of her in the role as martha yeah really great i think you have to think like as far as movies go this is her first like really big starring role let me show off the chops kind of movie because mm-hmm. they got the emmy nom from the crown being the first prince princess margaret around that and then movies obviously huge revelation in mission possible fallout as the white widow and basically runs that back for Hobbs and Shaw. But those are supporting roles in, in blockbusters. So you have this. He's like, okay, now Vanessa Kirby's like, not only do you like watching me and think I'm talented, but let me just show you how far I can take that, right? Which is she's in the majority of this film, not all of it. And there's a lot of like non-verbal acting that she's giving. So I think it's a very strong performance. And she is being pegged as one of the best actress nominees and probably actually one of the safer ones. So I would expect that to to hold. And that's great because I think she she's tremendous. Yeah, you know, I saw one criticism online that 
um, this movie for being named Pieces of a Woman doesn't actually like tell you much about who Martha is until like the very, very end. You know, like we know she's in some sort of like marketing role, um, but we don't really know exactly what she does. We never really know how she's feeling prior to the birth. I think you get a sense that her and Shy are in a pretty good place, but you don't really hear a lot of like, is she excited about it? Is she not? And then, you know, the rest of the performance is pretty muted. Like she's really kind of sunken into herself with grief and, and I think uh, uh, inability to really process that grief until the court scene at the end. Did, what do you think about that, that criticism? Do you feel like you really get to know Martha as a character throughout the movie? Well, I think, I think that kind of goes into criticism of the movie. Like I like the movie. I think the movie's good. I don't think it's amazing though. And I think that goes with really the whole middle of the movie and actually kind of the ending too, where, there's just a bit of a heavy handedness to the symbolism, notably the bridge and the apples, the apple seeds, the apples. And I was like, yeah, I feel like I kind of just like saw this coming. Cause like what at the end, when you get that courtroom scene, I'm like, okay, there's no way this movie's doing a courtroom scene. Like I, we just saw some really good courtroom scenes this year and mangrove and trash kind of seven. Like that's not what pieces of woman is. So you, you kind of saw the way it was going to go as soon as that scene starts. And to me, that just kind of like felt like it was from a different film. Like, like they kind of like didn't. I don't know. Like, I feel they kind of like they they kind of skipped some steps where it's like I understand. Yeah, she, she. There's some existential dread. She's just having a difficult time processing, as you assume anyone who's felt this way would. And mm-hmm. from what we know, uh, Mandruxo and Kata Weber, who wrote the film, uh, this is kind of autobiographical vaguely for what we know and i understand that like that sentiment that sentiment's clear early and then i kind of think we just spin our wheels a little bit like i think if anything it's like when when you have them lash out at each other when the family all gathers at ellen burston's house i believe it is like that that i think that's where like you really get like kind of like the the themes and the viewpoints kind of coming out but everything else where it's like you kind of just watching uh martha stroll and like look Gaze, look out the window and you know like she's, there's a lot of times where she's not saying a whole lot you know mm-hmm. so yeah I, I don't know like i don't know if i necessarily needed like a, a ton more characterization but i, I think the movie itself um kind of just meanders to the next like big scene yeah and i i think the the scene though you mentioned the scene with her and ellen Burson Burson in uh elizabeth's house and um how she comes to kind of challenge martha to like face what's going on instead of just trying to like move through life and not really try to process this grief and she tells a you know a story about um how when when she was a child her father went into the slums and uh nazi germany and her mom was like hiding under floorboards to keep her quiet and uh you know it was almost gonna have to like give her up at the doctor's suggestion and then you know she kind of pulls through and I, I agree i think like sometimes like the the symbolism in the movie is a little bit too on the nose or, or too like in your face like even in the that same scene or uh, when shia buffs outside and that like lone dog walks up and just kind of like sits there it's kind of like oh okay i get it like he's like getting ready to like leave and go off on his own like he's like totally apart like it just feels like there's certain things that kind of come across but i i, I did really find the first like 
30 to 40 minutes of the movie really really compelling um and i i think i'm trying to like put my finger on exactly what it was about that that worked so well because you know obviously like the burst scene is incredibly intense and hard to watch 30 Um, minutes one take it's like that's the cold open like it's very very drawn out yeah yeah and uh vanessa kirby and shia labeouf are acting their their asses off in that scene and i i found it you know hard to look away but also hard to watch at certain moments uh, especially you know once once you can tell things are not going in such a good direction um and even afterwards like you know shia is very much like not wanting to let go of his child yet and vanessa kirby is just like wanting to like pack the nursery up and not have it in her face and i found like those scenes to be really interesting and then it just kind of like becomes a bit of a dud i think like the second child like goes to see sarah snook as the lawyer it's kind of like all right now i'm a little bit out on this yeah i think there's too much shia Hmm. um and like the the performance he's giving it's kind of familiar to like what he did with honey boy a little bit like it's like and frankly i i did find a find it a little little difficult to watch at points given the recent allegations against Shia LaBeouf from FKA Twigs in particular and also the people like Sia where it's like yeah like th- this kind of feels like the a uh, portrait of the case story of Shia LaBeouf we've been told in terms of someone who has trouble with substances and also you know has doled out domestic abuse as he as, as has been alleged and I was like hmm this is a uh, this is this is a bit this is a bit a bit rough, you know, to watch. And for what it's worth, Netflix has removed his name from uh, the for your consideration pages and pushes for this movie. So it doesn't seem like they have any interest to really, you know, keep keep that shy stuff going. But as far as the movie's concerned, I still think he's giving a good performance. But but it's almost too much. Like I think the time spent, like the detour of we see Shia LaBeouf is. Uh, fallen out of sobriety that's one thing but like he also is having a fair with sarah snook just kind of off the cuff like that 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 didn't feel like that went anywhere at all Mm -hmm. that time could have been used better to flesh out more of how uh vanessa kirby's character is feeling martha i think that would have been a better choice yeah i agree and i also would have liked a little bit more time with vanessa kirby and ellen bierson together you know um there's obviously a lot of tension there and i would like to know a little bit more about the background like i want to know a little bit more about how their relationship exactly evolved that way because it seems like the mom is supportive but pretty much only financially not emotionally um and where that comes back around especially as ellen versus elizabeth is uh, obviously dealing with some form of dementia or memory loss as she's aging um and, and how that's affecting vanessa kirby as well because oftentimes that can be an inflection point for people in a relationship that's strained with a parent so i feel like there's just a lot more interesting stuff especially when you're trying to like flesh out the the womanhood piece of this and and i agree i think a little bit too much shia especially because sobriety is such a huge portion of like the beginning like don't want him to fall off the wagon so to speak and then when he does it's just kind of like okay like it's just kind of like known that he is and no one seemed to really care too much about it which i found a bit uh i don't know off-putting yeah. um I don't know. Any, any uh, <laughs> I guess I wanted to ask you this. Did you see any similarities between this movie and The Nest? 
Oh, hmm, no, I didn't. That did not come to mind, actually. The the dance scene with Vanessa Kirby was what kind of like brought it to mind for me. I mean, those scenes look kind of similar. You know, um, yeah. Carrie Coon has that that scene in the nest, but also I think you know, obviously Shia's character is the um, is more uh, blue collar than right. um, Jude Law's character in the nest. But I think they both kind of are like these two people living like or who have these huge lies that they're hiding from the people around them. Yeah. And, not really able to face it in a sense mm-hmm. but i don't just saw yeah. drawing those o- comparisons overall i i, I just just kind of wish it was more cerebral movie than it ended up being because as i mentioned with the courtroom scene like the whole thing about like the suit against the midwife i thought molly parker was pretty good mm-hmm. um especially in that first scene but like not that i'm an expert on on, on childbirthing practices and ethics but like it's pretty clear to the audience that like there was no grave crime committed. So I thought mm. we were just wasting our time with that. And again, it was pretty evident that Kirby's character's not gonna become really vindictive and hyped about this civil suit to get money. Like, right. you know, so and the movie was a little, I think stripped down even more and a little, little cerebral thing could have been even better, especially given the strength of the performances in the movie that we did get. Um, also, one thing I noticed is this movie is supposed to be set in Boston, but they I looked it up, they filmed it in Montreal, and I was like, I mean, this just doesn't look like Boston. This kind of looks like a city. I thought that was an odd choice. Especially like the bridge. I'm like, all right, well, I, I know that bridge doesn't exist. It can be mm-hmm. a fictional bridge, but it also just doesn't look like the Charles River. Yeah. So I was a little confused about the setting there. Me, me too. It was funny because... Um... I was watching with my partner, Julianne, and I was like, where is this taking place? She's like, it's Boston. I was like, this is not Boston. And then she's like, oh, I'll set it on the, on the ambulance, blah, blah, blah. Right, and the cab, um, too. It said it. Yeah. That's about all you get. <laughs> and then and then at the end, like, the, the guy in the court scene, like, the, the court clerk has, like, the heaviest Boston accent ever. And I was like, oh, okay, so we finally get, like, one Boston accent in this movie. But it was just so random. And, yeah. I don't know. Kind of funny. <laughs> but... Uh, Actually, yeah, on that note, there's a Netflix movie filming in Boston right now uh, with Leo and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and that, this is a movie where it's filming in Boston, but it's actually the movie set in New York City. And they brought they, they booked they, they moved and mailed in uh, New York City yellow cabs to make it authentically New York. But they're doing it in Boston. Just weird, weird stuff. The film production sometimes. Uh, boy. Well, um, check Piece of a woman out on Netflix. I think it's still worth your time, even if yes. it's not a perfect movie. Yeah. Um, Kirby and perhaps Burston as well seem to be on the track for nominations. Hell yeah! Let's let's get into it though, Dave. Uh, the 2020 year in movies are uh, we're finally getting to that top ten list. We always record this one a little bit later because we want to get to as many movies as we can. A lot of the award worthy movies are dropped end of year. So we're getting to catch up, and that's a little even later this year with the changing of the date of the Oscars. Talk about that real quick. Yeah, so normally, to be eligible for the upcoming Oscars, you have to have released theatrically, at least a token theatrical release, by the end of December, because the Oscars are usually end of February, early March. Uh, Given COVID, you know, months ago, they made the decision that you can release your movie up through February, February 28th, 2021, to be eligible for um the oscars that will be happening at the end of april um so as a result a lot of 2020 awards films effectively delayed their releases until february 
and thus uh, only only select critics have even seen these movies to this point. So uh, this year, those movies would include Nomadland, which uh, Chloe Zhao is the best director favorite at this time. You also have The Father, uh, in which Anthony Hopkins is expected to be nominated for Best Actor, as well as Minari, which I was lucky to see early, but uh, that's an A24 film that's quite great as well. And there's, there's other stuff as well, but those are, I think, that really did the big ones. Um, not to mention stuff like News of the World and Promising Young Woman were released just in theaters on Christmas, but will be coming to VOD on January 15th because they're universal releases. So th- there's some stuff that the layman just simply has not seen. And uh, given the way that this awards calendar has been uh, decidedly stretched, that's just the way it is this year. And heck, there's going to be other movies that from the jump have only been set for 21 release, but will be eligible for the upcoming Oscars, stuff like Juice and the Black Messiah, uh, Malcolm Marie, uh, Cherry, for example. So it's a weird calendar to wrap your head around if you care about that sort of thing. So either way, there's movies we haven't seen yet. Um, When we review those movies, if, if we really feel strongly about altering the list, we'll mention that then, but just note that there's some stuff we still haven't seen. Well, and, you know, talk about things we haven't seen. We didn't see a lot of movies because with COVID theater shutting down, a lot of theatrical releases have been pushed back to this year, some even into 2022 at this point. Um, so our lists compared to where we thought they were going to be uh, probably going to look a lot different. You know, if you go back and listen to our most anticipated movie pods, we got maybe like half of those movies. Yeah. So well, I guess like, just as you're going through your top tens and thinking about this year in movies, uh, I think for me, com- uh, what what it could have been and what we got, I, I would say I'm pleasantly surprised with, right? Because I'm looking at my list and not all these directors are going to be in my top ten, but we got a Christopher Nolan movie, a Spike Lee movie, we got a David Fincher movie, um, the Steven Soderbergh movie, mm-hmm. uh, Aaron Sorkin, you know. Uh, Judd Apatow, we got big name directors yeah. still dropping movies, which I'm thankful for. Like, George this, Clooney, even. <laughs> yeah, th- this year could have been a, a total loss, and I, I think we still got some some quality movies out of it. How do you feel about the year, just in total? Yeah, I, I feel similarly. Feel similarly, like, obviously the blockbuster list. Like if you're making a list of your the best movies of the year that grossed at least. Uh... <laughs> 50 million dollars like there's only so many movies that made really a lick of money because if you think about it the best movies generally are not released at the beginning of the year unless they're awards holdovers as previously mentioned and the box office completely closed by mid-march there was only a handful of big movies that really got to roll out the way they wanted to i think notably birds of prey and bad boys for life Um, bad boys for life is the highest grossing uh, U.S. release of, of the year domestically. Um, the, the biggest movie overall would be The 800, which is a Chinese film because the China box office was able to uh, completely recover this year due to the way they were able to manage the crisis, unlike we, we could here. Imagine um, that. Yeah, imagine that. So apart apart from uh, Tenet releasing later in the year, you really did not get another blockbuster release. Everything was uh, delayed or in some cases sent to streaming like Mulan and Soul. So it's uh, obviously very, very strange and abnormal as anyone who has a pulse knows by now. Yeah. 
Um, we, we talked ex- extensively about it, so go back and listen to our our thoughts on the state of movie theaters. But I think this is probably a good as good of time as any to jump into our top ten, Steve. And um, why don't you? Why don't, I'll let you go first. What's your number ten movie of the year? I ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. Is it hot sauce? Is that the line? Yeah, applesauce. Hot I sauce. ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. That's <laughs> your number ten. Oh, it's my Tenet. number one. All right, let's oh, talk fuck about yeah, it. it is. Let's go. I mean, wait. <laughs> why do we like movies, Dave? We like them because they tell cool stories. They take us to places that we never get to go. Especially this year, we didn't get mm. to go anywhere. Yeah. I had to watch this in my fucking living room. <laughs> A Christopher Nolan movie which is meant to be seen in theaters. I watched in my living room. Uh, if it's ever released in theaters, I'm going to go back and see it there. And mm-hmm. this transport. I, I recommend that, by the way. I was able to do that, camping out, making sure no one was there. I saw it with two other people with a mask <laughs> on, and it was still a great experience. And I, I'll do the same if I have to when I can. Um, when I think about movies, and, and especially what I missed this year, and that's probably a big theme of these, this is everything I like about movies. It's big, it's bombastic, huge set pieces, uh, great performances. I think a, a real star-making performance for John David Washington. Oh, yeah. Um, and even if it doesn't totally make sense, you, you're not going to see anything else on either of our lists that comes even close to the size of this. And I think I missed that this year, and that's probably plays a factor in why it's my number one. You can't tell the year of movies in 2020 without Tenet. Because Tenet did try to jumpstart the theatrical movie business. Uh, grand scheme of things, it, it did fail. Um, <laughs> made $360 million worldwide uh, in a vacuum. That is a really great number for a completely original film. Mm-hmm. And yet, it should have made more, and it needed to make more to justify its large budget as far as the business is concerned. Either way, it's still a brand new original film from Christopher Nolan. And this time it's Nolan does James Bond mm-hmm. and it fucking slaps. <laughs> it's also some of the best action he's ever made. Yep. And uh, just in terms of like action, like coherence on screen, it's incredibly impressive. You mentioned the, uh, the lead performance from Washington, obviously Robert Pattinson, the supporting role, continuing his tremendous run and, uh, other great uh, other great appearances as well. You think Aaron Taylor Johnson just coming off the top rope to explain some plot developments that uh, I think the average viewer doesn't really even care to understand. You know, it doesn't matter about the red team and the blue team, you know? Nope. It's just Aaron Taylor Johnson fucking speaking with his chest. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I, I, when I'm thinking about, like, there's so many moments in this movie that I really come back to, but I think about that moment when they just do the whole like second act backwards. Yeah. And I'm just like, what a fucking flex. And it's just so fun to watch. And it's just, yeah, tenant. It's, it's a movie. I'm probably going to go back and watch more than um, any other movie this year, which mm-hmm. I think is, you know, partially my, my Nolan fandom, but partially also it's just the most fun I had watching movies, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and like the, the the critics are certainly critics. It's certainly polarizing. Most Nolan movies are polarizing, but this one in particular is even more polarizing. I think partially because of the elevated expectations and hype laid on it because of how it was released in 2020, but also because 
it, it's his most challenging from a plot coherence standpoint because the progression of the plot in the world of Tenet is not A to B, right? Mm-hmm. Like, as you watch Tenet, you understand that. But even with all of that, like, the ambition is just so stark and so impressive. And again, because it's Christopher Nolan making it, there's just a lot of expert stuff, you know, being done. Yep. And um, I'm just really, I, I'm just really hopeful that he can continue to command large budgets. Will he get $200 million again? Maybe not, but I, I, I hope he can still get a lot of rope because very few people can put butts in seats with something completely uh removed from IP. The IP is effectively just Nolan himself and um, really ha- happy that they tried with the box office with this. Then again, it would have been awesome if this just was completely punted down the road uh, to 2021. But then again, again, uh, I'm happy it came out the way it did versus being one of the 20 HBO Max releases for WB in 2021. So, oh yeah, I, it's uh, at this point, everyone can see it easy to rent. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. just 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 go with it. I mean, <laughs> isn't that one of the lines at the beginning? It's like you you need to stop trying to make it all make sense or something. Yeah, I forgot so, how it's stop phrased. trying to understand it. You need to feel it. Like yeah, yeah. That's all this Damn is. Right. Just feel it. And uh, one of the things that makes this feel so, I think, uh, I don't know, exhilarating to me is you get an awesome score too. One of the most memorable for mm. me of the year from Ludwig Gordonson. So yeah. uh, he's just so uh, about at the top at this point. Yep, he's probably the top two or three. Him and uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross in terms of like current people scoring films. Yeah, I think I think we'll be talking about a film that they scored a little bit later. Ooh. Um, number ten for me is The Trial of the Chicago Seven. This make your list. Oh, uh, this did not. I think this I had this at uh twelve. It was on the list for most of the fall, but no, it just missed for me. So, full disclosure. Uh, Tenet's actually my number two movie I saw this year, but we decided Portrait of a Lady on Fire cannot count because that would be my number one. Um, but that's technically a 2019 release. Yeah, I also same thing for me. Saw it this year. So a yeah, uh, 13 is Trial of the Chicago Seven for me. So Trial of the Chicago Seven, obviously, obviously a loaded cast: Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Yaya Abdul Mateen. Uh, Jeremy Strong, Mark Rylance, George Jessica Lovett. I mean, it goes on and on. You get maybe one of the best cameos, surprise cameos of the year from Michael Keaton. Oh, yeah. Um, in playing Ramsey Clark, which Play, is just... Playing Michael Keaton, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> right. Playing Michael Keaton, playing Ramsey Clark. Um, just like an electric moment when he shows up. Uh, you know, Sorkin, we know his politics are always going to be a part of his productions. And you can't really avoid that at this point. But Trial of the Chicago 7, you know, I think it dropped, what, in October, I believe? Yes. Early October. Mm -hmm. And it felt so, the story felt so resonant to the time we were in leading up to the election, the time we've been in this year in regards to the the George Floyd protests. And um, I think just in general, like the idea of pushing back against a government that is not... uh, working for the people is actively harming people is, uh, you know, this obviously centers around the Vietnam war and um, the protests regarding that. But this is just probably my favorite like courtroom drama of the year, you know, and even though it's not like traditional courtroom drama of like the gotcha and like the, you know, the 
defense attorney is able to like save it or the prosecutor is able to like figure out the really smart way to like win the case. It's more so about how using the courtroom as a platform to show the the muzzling or the attempt to muzzle these uh, protesters and these people who are fighting against injustice. And then, you know, you, you get some some really fun moments outside of the courtroom, too, whether it's uh, Redmayne's Tom Hayden and Baron Cohen's Abby Hoffman going back and forth with each other and talking about, you know, their uh, their ideologies on how to go about fighting for injustice and how to gather attention and how you need to present yourself actually in some ways kind of reminds me of a movie we just talked about, which is One Night in Miami. Um, in terms of like that dialogue of between, you know, Cook and uh, Malcolm X in that movie, um, yeah, it's just a really memorable movie going experience for me. I think there's some, it's really well done, really well put together. You really feel like you're in Chicago when they go back to like the the scenes when like the protesters mm. are chased by the police. Yeah. Um, just really well done. Um, yeah, I don't really have much more to say about it. It's really memorable. I'd recommend anyone go watch it. It's on Netflix for free. So check it out. Yeah, for me, it was um, after seeing the first small axe film from Steve McQueen, Mangrove, I had my perception of Chicago 7 color a little bit. Still really like it, but contrasting those two films, uh, I think, is really uh, worthy to do and helpful. And comparing, I think, McQueen's uh, intimacy with Sorkin's more, uh, I think, grand gestures in terms of two films that are taking place, two stories that are taking place at a very similar time. It's uh, quite interesting. But yeah, Sorkin dialogue is a cliche term at this point, but he really knows how to wrap you up in terms of that courtroom scene. Um, Mm -hmm. It's quite enrapturing, even if it kind of has a a hokey ending, you know? For sure, yeah. That ending with Gordon Lovett is not good but the rest of the movie is so definitely worth the watch um dave your number nine number nine we just talked about would be one night in miami directorial debut for regina king check out our review of this youtube.com so it's now pod will be on amazon prime for everyone on january 15th but just to rehash um that energy you get from the ken power script regarding sam cook malcolm x muhammad ali and Jim Brown meeting in a hotel room and hashing out the uh, various uh, views they have on black power and black politics and white society and and the different uh, thoughts they have on how to better their community as well as themselves uh, just makes for really electric uh, scenes and dialogue. And Kingsley Benadier in particular gives a really, I think, eye-opening career uh, making performance as Malcolm X, which again is impressive because of uh, how well Denzel Washington did mm-hmm. that about 30 years ago. So, uh, you know, even though it's based off a stage play, it still has a really, I think, strong cinematic quality to it. And yeah, you know, bringing those four guys together, those four Titanic characters, and I think really kind of eloquently speaking to a lot of themes that are still quite resonant today again similar i said says for a lot of movies there's a lot of movies that take place in the past this year that uh, still feel resonant today politically and um socially so uh and that is still quite easier said than done so 
for sure. Atlanta, Miami. Check it out when it's available at the end of the week. Just missed my top 10. Uh, I think I have it at 13 on my list. Um, number nine for me, Dave, and I, I'm wondering if you have this on yours, is Eliza Hitman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Number six for me. So I'll, I'll let you take the lead, then I'll jump back in. Why is it number six for you? Yeah, I mean, this is Liza Hitman's third film. Her last movie, Beach Rats, got a lot of attention. But this, I think, this is a really good example of a movie that uh, has a great reveal about what the title means. You know, like mm-hmm. sometimes you do like the Rick Dalton pointing at the screen meme when you hear the title spoken. In this instance, though, you want to like cover your eyes because of uh, that revelation. And, you know, having a movie uh, about abortion is not about the abortion itself, but more about how society uh, seeks to control and uh, divert people that have any inclination to ponder an abortion. And it's not done in a grandstanding way or a preachy way. It's just done in a really matter of fact way that makes for some really harrowing scenes and moments. And along the way, you get just the revelation of Sidney Flanagan in her first role as a completely unknown performer. And um, even on the side, you get some, I think some really good portrayals of the daunting nature of transportation in New York city for the uninitiated, which I quite appreciate. Um, but I, I think ultimately it's just a movie that everyone should really see because of just how matter of factly it speaks to a uh, really difficult issue that, you know, still quite prevalent today just in terms of the, you know, access education to, uh, you know, abortion and abortion rights and stuff like that. It's uh, not, not the best watch in terms of being fun, but uh, it's a really well put together film. Yeah, this is the, uh, this is a good example of a movie that I don't know if I'm going to find myself going back to often, but no. the level of realism and the way it made me feel just completely devastated for the character of Auden by the end yeah. of it, right? You know, even though, um, even though there's, I think some some moments of of joy and and. I think especially seeing the way Skylar supports Autumn through all of this and this kind of like ride or die in a way for her through it is definitely heartening. The like you said, the journey that Autumn goes on this movie is just so challenging, so tedious. And I think if there's any movie that felt just like I was watching a documentary come to life this year, it's probably this one. Um mm-hmm. you know, uh, Eliza Hitman just created such a sense of realism and frustration and sadness and despair. Um, And like you said, that not only that feeling of like not knowing how to work the transportation system, but feeling like you have no money, they had nowhere to stay. Like everything just felt so hard for them. And the lengths that uh, Autumn had to go, it's just, you know, you get that really nice scene where they do karaoke finally, and she kind of like lets things out a little bit, and that's like a very like almost like relieving moment in a sense. But then she's right back to her like confined self, and I think that's why um, uh, Flanagan's performance is so commendable. Is that 
you know, for being such a young and up and coming actress is I think her first feature film, she really does a lot with a role that's very subdued. So um, definitely a movie I'm going to remember from this year, even if I don't go back to it too much. So mm-hmm. that was my number nine. Dave, what's your number eight? My number eight's a movie I saw a long time ago, back in February 2020 um, in theaters. That'd be The Assistant, the first movie from Kitty Green. This is a film that uh, takes place at a fictional film uh, company, studio, in New York City. It centers around Julia Garner's uh, performance as a young assistant, film assistant. And people know Julia Garner from Ozark and The Americans, won an Emmy already really good performer and in this case similar to never really sometimes always i guess you could say there's like a sense of 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 dread that hangs over the characters and the uh the audience as a result and in this case it's um a unseen unnamed uh, head of the studio stand in for a harvey weinstein type figure and seeing how those gross actions are enabled and tolerated and covered up by a large support system of enablers and you don't see any heinous acts you don't see this terrible person you just see everyone else in that orbit and uh you know later in the movie when matthew mcfadden comes in as an hr person who's uh in on uh the scam as it were uh you know kind of really like distills that down and it's a again it's a small film you know really set in this one building in new york for the most part but uh thematically it's just awfully awfully resonant and feels unfortunately still really uh really realistic you know yeah i think that uh this is a movie i haven't seen i want to get to um but everything I've, i've heard and read about it it seems like this is a movie that speaks widely to something that's still going on a lot so very commendable choice at your number eight my number eight i'm wondering where this falls on your list is the vast of night Ooh, number four for me wow okay um i'll just i'll just start off the top here quick and i'll let you vamp on it um if if you care about up-and-coming directors (laughs) you need to watch the vast of night because andrew patterson is going to be someone we're talking about in like five years he's one of the best directors i think in hollywood you know to make something this that feels this big but is really like just a very small simple low budget movie is just Mm -hmm. really really impressive um tell me what you love so much about the vast and we'll kind of go back and forth i mean for for less than a million dollars he made a you know clear homage to steven spielberg and Mm -hmm. films like close encounters of the third kind it's uh so warm in its homage to uh, films of the past in that regard. And, you know, this set in uh, the 50s, is it? It's set yep, you know, around there. 1950s New Mexico. Yeah. And on the, you know, on the periphery, you get comments about, um, about race in terms of like the Native American and African-American soldiers that were, uh, you know, involved with the supernatural that's going science fiction that's going on in this story because those type of people would not be trusted by mainstream society so they'd have to worry about them telling uh, what's going on right like you have that on the surface you have the obvious spielberg of it all you have just incredible craftsmanship as you said from patterson who i, I agree you should invest in because he seems quite grounded 
in his uh, terms of being in control of his career as a native of Oklahoma City that does not bother with social media. He does not seem like a, a up and coming director who's going to get swept up in the franchise game. So that's exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, the movie's just super well made, super tight. Um, you know, thing about the sound design because of the, oh, the, yeah. the the presence of radio throughout lots of the movie, right? Like there's 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 so much care to it. Heck, heck even um, I was reading about this after the fact. The opening scene where you see the uh, local uh, basketball game going on, and they mm-hmm. took great care to make sure the three point line was actually the right uh, <laughs> diameter for what it would have been like at the time. You know, um, crazy. But in, t- in terms of sci-fi, in terms of uh, like like thriller stuff, uh, it's just it's just world class, I'd say. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And you know, the, the scene as you were talking that kind of came to mind, and that I think in a lot of ways could have been seen as a really cheap trick, but doesn't come across this way is when they're they get the call from the caller who said that they've experienced these ufos before and it kind of like zooms in i can't remember if it's just totally black or if it's like the stars are kind of there but it's pretty much just like a black screen you don't see characters anymore you're just listening and you're supposed to have that experience like you're a caller who is hearing this radio uh show you know in in the 1950s and it totally works it totally sucks you in this like five to six minutes of like nothingness on the screen and i just was like so taken aback by that to like be so sucked in and bought into a movie in 2020 um that i'm watching at home on my television and uh to feel like i can watch a black screen and be totally entertained and totally sucked into this i just thought was so impressive um and then you add on to that i think uh just the feeling of like wonder but also like dread at points like when they go to talk to that old lady who said her son had been taken by the aliens just like the movie really puts you through uh, up and down of emotions and feelings and um, just a total master class so the vast of night check it out my number eight dave's number four dave we're on to number seven what do we got next number seven for me is the sound of metal available on amazon prime my seven as well let's do it yeah so i i it seems there's a big groundswell of support for this movie from people that have seen it and um a lot's been made of riz ahmed's performance i think he's very much in the mix for best actor but also which is i think is even better to see is that paul racy's supporting performance mm-hmm. is getting a lot of love too but you know this is a movie about the deaf community that doesn't fetishize or disrespect anything going on with that community, despite the fact that Riz Ahmed is not a deaf person. The movie is made with such care for that, and and movies have not always been made uh, in that regard. To be blunt, um, you know, casting lots of people in that community and supporting roles, periphery roles, even Paul Racy, who is giving Oscar-worthy performance as someone who was born to deaf parents. You know, the whole fallacy of just cast the best person doesn't matter if they're black or white well actually if you make an effort to be more inclusive you also do get good the best results and i think this is a great example of that and the movie um largely anchored by i think a really central physical performance from riz ahmed um you know kind of commands that uh that feeling well and you know i really like how it ends and the journey his character goes through 
terms of coming to terms with his new uh, life that is being a deaf person, you know, um, you know, another movie that's hard to watch at points because it, it is difficult subject matter, but uh, you know, again, really um, a lot, a lot of care put into yeah. it. And when you have that with great performances, it makes for a good movie. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is actually a really underrated uh, movie about addiction and specifically about addiction recovery and maintaining that that sobriety um because Riz Ahmed's character is obviously a um you know an alcoholic or I think a substance abuser or maybe just a drug addict I don't remember exactly but Ruben is um sober but you can still see that as his life is uh as he's experiencing this new obstacle that's put his life on a different path um He's also struggling with maintaining this piece of himself that could have devastating effects if he doesn't. And um, I think that's really well portrayed in Riz's performance. Um, I also just remember so many small moments that really touched me. You know, I think about the scene where the kid's acting up in class and he takes them out to the slide and they start banging on it together and kind of like just feeling the vibrations and that's kind of like the the eureka moment in a way for Riz and like this he kind of starts to find that he can still have purpose and meaning and joy and and this new life where he's lost this this piece of himself um but then to kind of like have that swing back the other way as he you know finds where Lou is over in France and starts selling things impulsively to go see her and work things out and the the last like 15 minutes between Lou and Ruben is just totally heartbreaking um mm. but then ends with that awesome moment of him sitting there just a uh, really well done movie uh one of my favorites of the year i've recommended it to a bunch of people in my life and pretty much everybody that's seen it has said rave rave reviews so definitely check it out um dave i think you said your number six already right yeah never really yep the number six for me is palm springs Ooh, nice um andy sandberg and uh, Kristen Milotti, Milotti, um, and directed by uh, Max Barbacow. So this is actually a movie that Barbacow and Sandberg had talked about for a long time. It had been kind of like an idea that they had been mulling around um, this like Groundhog Day and Palm Springs type thing and where they wanted to go with it. Um, and, you know, I don't think this is the funniest movie I saw this year. I think that would probably go to Borat if I were to look back and really mm-hmm. talk about it. Uh, is Borat on your list? Oh, it is not. Okay. So, yeah, Borat is probably the movie I laughed the most at. But I think in terms of a movie that really hits the the spot, the sweet spot of rom-com that's actually funny and actually moving um, and thought, thought-provoking with some really just outlandish but funny uh moments this would be it you know you have jk simmons coming in being roy who's just like this ridiculous like right over the top character but then gets that really sweet moment with sandberg where kind of provides some some levity um you know you get a lot of really fun moments between sandberg and miliati as miliati kind of comes to grips with being stuck in this this loop um and i i also think that this just especially the time it dropped, which I believe was like right around the time that the lockdown and stay at home orders started. Uh, 
provided a sense of levity and um, like respite from a really dark time uh, in in the world. So uh, definitely a movie I would say check out if you have Hulu. Um, it's it's well worth it. Yeah, it's probably one of the most popular movies uh, on either of our lists. Probably other than yeah. Tenet, it's probably the most watched thing here. Yeah, maybe Soul. Yeah, if, yeah. If Soul's on your list. That's two. Um, uh, number five for you, Dave. Let's say like, m- most watched from the first half of the year, first yes. seven months, without question, anyway. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, number five for me would be Defy Bloods from Netflix My... and Spike Lee. Number two. Nice. Yeah, um, you know, just a few years after Black Klansman, I feel like this is a a level up in a sorts from Spike. You You have a lot of the similar techniques in terms of spike inter stitching real life footage and, and and dialogue and stuff but contrasting that with you know his his fictional story and i think it's more effective this time around than it is in black clansman whereas it felt a little ancillary i think of black clansman not that it was bad but defy bloods um i, I mean i'm just really struck with the the performances and the production values that Spike mm-hmm. kind of gets out of the movie, you know. Um, lots been made of Delroy Lindo's performance. I'd expect a best actor for him. And of course, Chadwick Boseman giving a great supporting role, which um, is really, I think, really central to the movie and like the, the ethos of Defy Bloods, his, his role via flashback as Storm and Norman. Storm and and um, was, was later um, trumped by uh, Boseman himself with his more uh, showy performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. But uh, you know, I think Lindo, Lindo, the, the his character in Defy Bloods, I think, is, is really expert. You know, as being a more conservative black man who willingly voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and what that represents to his fellow black men and um, the differences they have. And um, you also get a lot of uh, good, good action and and and. Um, you know, just conflict scenes because it's set in Vietnam with a uh, former GIs and stuff. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite multi-layered and um, thrilling throughout, you know, re- re- yeah. really great. I think you said it really well. Um, you know, there's, there's such a, uh, there's so many different messages you can take away from this movie. I feel like if you were to watch it 10 times, you, you'd probably take 10 different things away. Um, but I mean, not only did this movie, I think, have some of the best political commentary, um, you know, current political commentary, um, but it also, I think, had some of the most like fun, like bro moments in a sense. Like I think about, you know, Lindo and Majors and Peters and Lewis just kind of like dancing in the club to Marvin Gaye as like probably yeah. my fa- one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene of the year. Um, you know, them like on the boat and uh walking through uh the you know the force of vietnam and jungle of vietnam i should say and it's just uh really memorable um and it just feels like spike lee right now is just operating at probably his, his apex in terms of like mixing commercial success with you know his usual like um political um leanings and uh making it to a point where everybody is taking it in you know this also comes during a time when 
there's a lot of political and social unrest, um, especially around what it means to be a black man in America. And I think this movie hits on a lot of interesting themes, like you said. So definitely, uh, I think, worthy of being on any list this year. And I'm hoping we get a couple of nominations out of this because I think it's definitely worth it. Yeah. We gave a pretty lengthy review of the movie. So check that out if you yeah. want to at youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Number five for me um, is a movie called Baby Teeth, which Ooh, nice inspired choice, my friend. Thank you. Uh, technically debuted in 2019, but really no one that was able to see it till 2020. Um, and man, Shannon Murphy, who directed this movie, I think it's two of my favorite performances of the year in this movie from Liza Scanlon and Ben Mendelsohn um, mm. as uh, Henry, played by Mendelssohn, the father of Eliza Scanlon's uh, Milla in this movie, is kind of um, working to hold himself and his family uh, together as Milla is moving towards the end of her life as she's dealing with terminal cancer. And then you bring in Toby Wallace as Moses into the mix as this like kind of wild card, wild boyfriend of Milla. Um, and kind of how they all come to grips and deal with this end of life and uh, a, a movie that really puts you through the ringer of emotion from joy to frustration to confusion to despair. Um, Mendelssohn, who's been on fire this past year, you know, we talked about him in The Outsider. We talked about him with Captain Marvel last year. We thought he was really good and fun. I think this is the best performance he's given. Um, probably in his career in my opinion and uh, I just find I just find this movie incredibly charming and I, I think about that like I, th- I think it was Christmas or Thanksgiving scene where they're all together like having fun and just kind of like showing off and uh, just a, a moment I'd want to live in so definitely uh, definitely a, a movie I would encourage you to watch i'm not sure where it's available to stream right now or if it is but i think it's I'd, just uh vod rent I'd, i would pay for it if, if you have the, the scratch so number four for you david was the vast of night number three uh my number four is mank where's this fall on your list oh mank is number three for me also baby teeth's currently on hulu ah so there you go. easy to check out yeah check number three out. for me is mank So tell me why Mank is your number three, Dave, since it's a little higher for you. Yeah. I mean, a movie that had a lot of hype going in as David Fincher's long-awaited return to feature films uh, after 2014's Gone Girl and his diversions, the television with Mindhunter, right? And in the process, he's taking this script that his father wrote 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and is tackling the authorship of Citizen Kane by Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz, a long uh, debated and argued over aspect of film history. And um, in the process, he's also mimicking uh, one of the key aspects of Citizen Kane itself in terms of a nonlinear narrative structure. And I was just really impressed with the uh, scale and ambition of of the film and 
I think unexpectedly, it, it's not as authoritative about the authorship angle of Kane, but in its place, something was really unexpected uh, came came about, which was political resonance once again, um, norm, n- namely uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst and Louis B. Mayer's interest in suppressing the uh, uh, leftist views of Upton Sinclair and the, the use of uh, the media to distort public perception by just lying and twisting the truth. And seeing that, uh, again, in a movie set in, uh, I believe it's the late 30s, uh, you know, on the eve of World War II, yet seeing all these techniques, uh, media techniques that are still so relevant and, and common today um, really blew me away. And in the process, you get a good old Gary Oldman performance and a really revelatory Amanda Seyfried performance that was yeah. really out of nowhere. Yep. Yeah, it's... The, the way it pays homage to Kane without, I feel like, totally ripping it off and using the story about Kane to replicate a movie that looks like Kane, it, but I don't know. It's just like a really impressive, like, it almost kind of put, put my mind in a pretzel thinking about it. Like, just the way that Fincher's able to, like, replicate things but still make it feel authentic is really great. I mean, Oldman's awesome. Mention Seafried is, like, I think incredibly compelling as Marion Davies. Um, and yeah, you just get like great performance. That's a great performance. And for a movie where, you know, I guess like it, when you think about it and what, where the movie is trying to go, like how much actually really happens in this movie, right? I guess you get like Mank in the bed, you get like kind of the back and forth between the studio and Wells and Mank and the studio and like that whole triangle, but you don't ever actually see Kane being made. You don't actually really get much Mank versus Wells in this. It's a lot more just about this person um, and who was, a, uh, I think, kind of like the movie, not black and white, very gray, shades of gray throughout. And um, I think exploring all of that it, and making it as compelling as it was when this was a character who, at least I hadn't really, like, read much about or heard much about and right. um was totally bought in and you get a, a bill nye um cameo so i mean how could you not have this in your top three of the year right top four <laughs> of the year um great great choice for your number three that was my number four so dave what what's up next on your list number two for me would be first cow the very last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic kicked off um, from A24 and Kelly Reichert, the, uh, one of the queens of uh, truly independent cinema. And First Cow, you know, I just knew it was well-liked from the festival run it had in 2019. I was very excited to see it. And once I did see it, without really knowing much about it, um, just really taken with a uh, it's just a movie that really works once uh, it kicks in the gear. And John Magro's character, Cookie, and Orion Lee's character, uh, King Lou, I believe is his name, They uh, once they meet and, be- and befriend each other and then get their scheme underway, uh, it's, it's just a really joyful time. <laughs> you know, it, 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 the period trappings are, are evident. We're set in the the Oregon territory in the 1800s at the height of the beaver trade, you know, it's a uh, transporting for sure. 
but <laughs> the enterprising nature of the two characters, I think the, it's a really uh, effective demonstration of genuine friendship along the way. And I think a really tactful choice of uh, foreshadowing that's done the very first scene in terms of the fate of the two lead characters. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, A24, they, uh, they'll give any talented filmmaker a shot to make their weird little shit. And I think this is, uh, you know, it's not the weirdest thing, but, uh, it's definitely out there, right. In terms of <laughs> what, it, what, what's actually happening on it. But I, I think it's a, it's a really joyous movie actually. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not in my top 10, but it's a, a movie I definitely enjoyed. Um, definitely was impressed with how much they made it look, uh, you know, like it was during that time. Um, yeah, especially for being a, what I would assume is a small budget movie. Um, yeah, definitely a great choice. Um, and, uh, similar to what you said about my baby teeth I th- I'd say inspired because not a movie I've seen on a lot of top 10 lists that high but I think definitely one that is worthy of being talked about in that way um the next movie on my list Dave which is my number three and the only movie we haven't talked about yet is soul is soul on your list it is not so we recently talked about soul I won't go too much into it but this is the the new Pixar movie dropped on Christmas Day um, you know, voiced by Jamie Foxx, um, Tina Fey is the top two. And then David Diggs also in there in a pretty cool role. Uh, no, actually, he's not the one I was thinking of. David Diggs is in a smaller role. But anyways, uh, Pete Docter, um, well known uh, in the Pixar universe as kind of being involved in many of the the great Pixar movies. And more recently, probably the the most acclaimed one in uh uh, inside out but yep. soul i think not only continues and i think even ups the level of production from pixar in terms of reality uh and, and just amazing animation i mean there are scenes in this where you almost feel like you're actually in new york city whether it's the subway scene um or when they're kind of like running through the busy city and eating pizza, like um, some really cool moments, but um, you know, a movie that I think makes you reflect and Pixar in some ways, you know, you, you get the onwards, which are made for kids and have, you know, the overarching themes that adults can get. This is, a, this is a movie made for adults, made for those kids that grew up with Pixar and are now into their late twenties, early thirties, maybe even forties who are like, how am I, making sense of my life how am i making sense of why i'm here how i find joy or meaning in all of this and um you know i I, i've really sat with the movie i think it's made something that's been resonant with me in terms of like trying to be more grateful and more tuned into the small things in life that that make it feel full especially as a lot of those big things have been taken from us this year um so i'm i'm definitely uh, really impressed with soul and i if you haven't seen it which i know a lot of people have uh if you haven't definitely check it out because i think it's a movie that will at least make you think and feel things so uh, my number three for the year soul i think only your number one is left is that right that's correct what do you got number one for me a movie i was very lucky to see would be minari um just by happenstance the third korean film to top my list uh, in the past three years, although 
Notably, Minari is made by a Korean American, Lee Isaac Chung, and it's a movie uh, in in uh, set in uh, the U.S. about um, you know Korean Americans, and this came up in controversy because of the Golden Globes decision to have Minari be a uh, international film, even though it's a movie made by Americans about Americans, but because they speak Korean in the movie, it was deemed foreign. So the Hollywood Foreign Press took a lot of um, egg on their face for that. And I think in the process, there's been even more groundswell about Minari. People are excited to see this movie when it eventually uh, releases in uh, February for May 24. And, you know, unlike, uh, say, the last time I saw Stephen Young 2018 burning, uh, you know, now Young is the lead and it's a really, I think, warm but understated performance from him, you know, in burning, he's on the side, more mysterious, there's a mystique to him. Sorry to bother you. He's definitely an ancillary character. This time he really dominates the film in terms of trying to uh, start out and be his own man and, and make money for his family on his own, the way he wants, while also struggling to keep that family together and unified and, uh, in terms of a movie about the immigrant experience, about family bonds, and about value, figuring out what really matters to you and 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 your family, um, it's tough to do better than this. Um, really war movie. It has a really great child performance from uh, I forget, forget Fred his name, but he's only like eight or nine years old and a really really precocious kid, and it, it, I think. He, uh, the character's name's David, and if David wasn't uh, as as likable and good in the movie, I think it would have hurt the film. But the casting is is quite tremendous, and I don't know if Stephen Young's gonna get nominated for best actor. He's in the mix. Um, it's a tough field this year, but I would really like to see that just because of the as a culmination of the journey he's been on of late. But Minari definitely make time to see it um, when it comes out. Uh, you know next month and i assume that'll just be theater so it'll be a while for the average person has even a chance to see this film but um it, it, it will be remarked upon as war season kicks off no question yeah i can't wait to see minari as well as nomadland the father a couple of other movies that dave mentioned at the beginning so our list will probably be evolving as we see those and if you really want to see what we've been uh, liking where we're putting it, go to our letterbox uh, where we keep uh, a detailed running list of all the movies we've seen during the year. Um, you know, just search our names. You'll find us. But yep. Dave, just before we wrap up, any honorable mentions or any movies you want to shout out for good or bad reasons? Yeah, a lot of movies uh, you mentioned I had in my top 20, like Chicago 7 and Soul, Baby Teeth, Palm Springs. Um, but movies you haven't mentioned, I'd like to shout out Bad Education, on mm -hmm. HBO, which, you know, it's a movie. It was nominated for TV movie at the Emmys because it's bought by HBO, but it's a film. Uh, really, really fun, especially because that came out, like, earlier in the year. That was um, really welcome as, like, a, you know, just a good movie that we just got to have easy access to and we couldn't do anything, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Also quite enjoyed Another Round, the uh, uh, Denmark film with Mads Mikkelsen, yep. um, you know. I mentioned Mangrove. I also really enjoyed Lover's Rock from Steve McQueen. And also, you know, I think it, it's kind of been forgotten a little bit this year, but I still really enjoyed uh, Tiger Tail from Alan Yang on Netflix. And also Emma 
uh, which is a movie I saw in the theaters right before quarantine, the uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, uh, Jane Austen film. Yeah. Quite funny. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the ones that um, I was going to shout out. So I just want to shout out some of the movies that I, I didn't like so much this year. Um, <laughs> uh, Capone? Yeah. What the fuck was that? <laughs> uh, it was what Trank wanted to make. And uh, sure. That, that's something, at least. Um, the last thing he wanted. Yeah. Uh, my just second, doesn't work. Yeah. My second to last uh, movie on my list, which oh, it's is, my it's my last, actually. Uh, so my, my last is Love Wedding Repeat, a movie you haven't seen, but it's nope. just truly abysmal. Um, <laughs> and I also just wanted to give a, uh, a quick shout out to a movie that I think has kind of fallen uh, by the wayside a little bit, but I still really enjoyed, which is The Gentleman. Um, yeah. You know, when we think about this year, January, I about, <laughs> yeah, I think about going to the movies and really enjoying a film. Uh, that might be my favorite movie going experience for, the, for me for the year. Yours is probably Tenet, but for mm-hmm. me, it's probably The Gentleman. So uh, shout out to movie Good theaters. Stuff. We love you. Um, drop us your what your list look like or what movies we miss which ones should be up there um follow us on letterbox follow us at nostalgia pod any last thoughts for the week dave i also wanted to mention and this movie's been on some lists depending on where you look but i'm thinking of ending things didn't totally click for me because it's a charlie kaufman movie that's i think mm-hmm. by design but uh, i know a lot of people did really like it and you'll see that reflected on some lists but i had it uh you know kind of mid-pack for me not on my list either um dave what should people be checking out for next week so we do have two notable movies that we'll have access to because they'll be coming to video on demand as universal releases after their christmas theatrical runs that would be news of the world with tom hanks from paul greengrass as well as promising young woman starring carrie mulligan to uh much uh remarked upon film both supposed to be pretty good and i'm excited to see both of those finally and we'll also get the uh debut first episode of wandavision on disney plus the first mcu entry of any kind since spider-man far from home in july 2019 it's been a quite a long time well we're, we're finally getting some stuff to talk about next week which would be nice the year's finally kicking off so uh follow along at nostalgia pod um go to uh, youtube.com slash nostalgia his subscribe and also that five-star review on itunes we appreciate it we love you stay safe peace out yeah.